0: Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union, our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
2: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind,
0: Listener Mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're answering your Listener Mail, or I don't know how much answering we're going to do. We're at least going to read your Listener Mail. We might offer thoughts about it. We might just put it out there and let it, let it hang. Uh, but uh, we're going to get into some stuff about our episode on the lock and key, some responses to bug funerals, and we're going to address the ongoing stream of, uh, that maybe will never stop of listener mail about robot jocks. It seems like people just can't get that out of their heads.
2: Uh, that has been a pleasant surprise because when I, when I, I think that was one that I, I selected and I was thinking to myself, man, this one's so hard to find right now. Perhaps I'm the only one out there who has any kind of fond memories of this movie. Oh. Uh,
0: so it's been nice to see that other folks remember it as well. No, that's been an absolute highlight of weird house cinema for me so far. I I think about robot jocks at least once a day. (laughs) And we didn't even realize the serendipity when we picked it that one of the places it's actually streaming is called Tubi. (laughs) Oh, man. I didn't even really really put that together. But that's true. Yeah. Tubi. Uh, Do you want to read this first message about our bug funeral episode from Jim in New Jersey?
2: Yes. Uh, Jim in New Jersey, a longtime uh, listener mail correspondent here, writes in and says, uh, Robert and Joe, you missed one of the best stories about E.O. Wilson and the scent of death for ants. Radio Lab featured it a bit over 10 years ago and he include a, uh, included a link for this. You can look it up it says, uh, by looking for, hey, I'm dead, the story of the very lively ant.
0: Oh, and the, we should say the subject line of Jim's email was ants yelling, I'm not dead yet. ha. <laughs> Anyway, Jim continues. Once the signal of death is in the air, which takes about two
2: days, any ant that happens by grabs the corpse and carries it through the colony to a refuse pile designated the graveyard and dumps it on a mound of also dead ants. Wilson wrote in his autobiography, I thought maybe with the right chemicals, I could create an artificial corpse. (laughs) Wilson discovered that oleic acid, just a tiny a teeny sorry drop of it was all the ants had to sniff to think dead one day he took a drop of the chemical and gently deposited it on an ant that had the misfortune of walking by wilson describes how as soon as he dabbed the ant the next ant that came near grabbed his ant slung it on its back hiked over to the graveyard and though the ant was still very much alive kicking you know says ed flung it into the refuse pile Dead is what you smell, not what you see if you were an ant. So, though it tried to clean itself over and over, the minute it returned to the colony, it was grabbed, carried, and slung back on the pile. The zombie (laughs) ant was eventually able to
0: clean itself sufficiently and rejoin the nest. Jim in New Jersey. Uh, That is morbid, but yes, very funny. Actually, I I don't know if this was clear in the text of Jim's email, but I think that middle section was actually a quote from that NPR piece. We should just be clear. Uh, okay, yeah. In in that case, uh,
2: yeah, d- definitely go back and listen to it. Radio Lab has yeah always been a wonderful show. Yeah, uh, and uh, their archives are are rich and deep, uh, as is the Ant
0: Graveyard. I say no resentment or rivalry whatsoever. Please go listen to Radio Lab. Yes. Okay. This next message picks up from one of the tangents we went on in our funeral for a bug episodes uh you remember in that episode uh, we started talking about some of the weird ironies of pastoral poetry so pastoral poetry is a you know long running genre uh going back into the ancient world but still continuing into recent times where uh th- the main thrust of it is that it sort of celebrates the rural existence as uh, as a as a peaceful beautiful thing that is uncomplicated by all of the 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 I don't know, the sin and and complexity of of city life. And so uh, this message comes from Jacob, and it picks up on one particular comment we had there. The subject line, pastoralism and YouTube. Jacob says, hey, Joe and Rob." First-time writer, a long-time listener. I was listening to the January 21st episode, Funeral for a Bug, and you wondered if shows like The Great British Baking Show were modern pastorals. I think there's something to that, but I can do one better. Since the pastoral, according to poets.org, idealizes a rural life and landscape, I couldn't help but think of the subgenre of YouTube videos I've recently become addicted to, building things especially building things by hand using traditional techniques like blacksmithing, hand tool woodworking, timber framing, and so on. I've had quite a few in my subscription feed, but a few stand out as fitting the definition. Primitive technology seems like the Ur example, but Mr. Chickadee, Dylan Iwakuni, and T.A. Outdoors are some that I think also fit into the pastoral tradition. They usually have minimal dialogue, are set outside, and focus on the tool work. Unlike some other woodworking or maker-centered channels, there's no attempt to instruct. It's literally watching someone build a cabin or a kiln or something out of basic materials like stone, wood, or clay using hand-powered tools. I'm struck by this comment from the poets.org definition, quote, ironically, the conventions of the pastoral genre were established by sophisticated urban poets whose beautific portrayals of rural life perpetuated fantasies and misconceptions about the rural lifestyle. And yeah, that, that was definitely one of the ironies we, we touched on in the episode. It was like all this stuff about how, how nice it would be to be a shepherd, but, you know, written by someone who's never been a shepherd and doesn't realize mm-hmm. what kind of work is involved. Uh, But back to Jacob's message. Jacob says, I've done a little woodworking and home renovation and working by hand is slow and physically demanding. It can be fun the way a good workout is fun. But the idealized notion that somehow this is the good life, the simple life is way off. Rural life meant subsistence, farming, or labor, and that typically meant living on the edge of starvation, one bad season or one serious injury or illness away from disaster. Hardly a desirable lifestyle. Which makes me wonder what the appeal is for these channels, because I'm hopelessly addicted. And, judging by their subscribers, I'm not the only one. It's soothing to watch and listen to. Uh, Some of them even tag their videos as ASMR. But more than that, I'm guilty of romanticizing exactly what I criticized above. I'm currently building a workbench, for the fr- and uh, the first thing I decided to do was to do it all by hand. I don't have a great explanation for why, other than that it takes all my focus and as such puts me in a sort of flow or zen meditation state. It's also a bit of time travel, learning a traditional craft. It helps you understand an era not your own. But that's a luxury of the relatively rich. If I were doing this for a living and hoping to sell enough to feed my family, I doubt I'd be calm or philosophical about it. Since it's a hobby, though, I can work at my own slow pace and think deep thoughts or listen to deep podcasts like Stuff to Blow Your Mind while I do it. Love the show. Keep up the good work. And you can absolutely read this on air with my name if you choose. Thanks, Jacob. Well, Jacob, we're always assuming we can read this on air with your name. With the, we uh, we tend to leave off last names if you supply them.
2: Right. Uh, and, and if you're writing in about something and you, you would prefer no name attached at all, that's perfectly cool. Just let us know that that's the case.
0: Oh, yeah. And you can also write to us uh, with a message that you would prefer us not to read on air. Just make sure you note that in the email. Yeah. Uh, but yeah I, I thought this was a really interesting message and I think this is this is on to something that is uh, very interesting so there, there are multiple threads to, to pull on here one is yes this uh, this sort of idealization of traditional rural types of labor uh, you know farming type labor woodworking type labor um uh, and and the difference between doing that labor as a hobby, where you have no time constraints really, and you can just explore it at your leisure, versus doing that kind of labor to survive, you know, which is which is very different. I often think about this difference um, with cooking. You know, I do a lot of cooking at home. I actually, really enjoy cooking. Uh, and sometimes people will say, like, "Oh, have you ever thought about you know being a chef or working in a restaurant?" I have worked in restaurants, not as a cook. I've worked as a, you know, server, you know, busboy, and all that. And it's a totally different thing. I think a lot of people don't realize that if you're working in a restaurant kitchen, it is not the same kind of leisurely, recreational, fun activity as it would be if you're just sort of like cooking on a week weekend at home. Uh, there, you have these intense time constraints, a lot of different types of labor to manage and prioritize. It's often highly stressful, uh, and it's, it's just a totally different experience than recreationally cooking in a home kitchen.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think this is often the, the case with uh, with various hobbies and and uh, and activities. Uh, like, like, for instance, I, I engage in some of the miniature and model painting and, uh, and you know, it's really fun and calming. But if I were to if I, if I were doing this exact task or something like it and I was having to crank something out, you know, if I was part of a production line or if I were I don't know if you were to apply it to say, um, you know, being a colorist or something, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, for manuscripts or comics or something, uh, you know, you potentially get into that situation where you're just having to to just do so much of it you don't have that um, the potential's there to 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 lose hold of that zen state that you go into when you do it in fact i've i followed like really skilled miniature painters before, and uh, in some cases they've had to, they've, they've done like a certain amount of professional work, you know, like they're selling pieces that they've painted and uh, they're doing commissions, but then they have to scale back and stop doing that, and part of it is sometimes the fact that it it makes the hobby less fun, you know your hobbies yeah. become less ho- less fun sometimes when they become your job, yeah, uh, which is one of the uh, the disappointing facts of life,
0: I guess. Another thing I would say about that is I think what it's real, I think the really crucial element is not whether or not it's a job that you get paid for, but it is about um whether there is specifically sort of like time and stress pressure on you. Because the same dynamic that I talked about with restaurant cooking can certainly be true for home cooking. If you're just like trying to, you know, make meals on a weeknight and, you know, you're trying to do it as fast as you can to feed the family and that kind of thing. there, There's just a big difference between being able to do something at your own pace and needing to do something on a timetable.
2: Yeah, and dealing with outside stressors that aren't there necessarily if you're just engaging in a hobby. Um, now, interestingly enough, on the, the idea of uh, videos about crafts. Uh, I've really enjoyed watching uh, some videos uh, dealing with painting, and I found them very calming in a similar way. Like there's there's one uh, guy online uh, that uses the the moniker uh, Sorastro and uh, he, he has all these videos where he has a very calming voice, and he's engaging in painting different miniatures and, you know, covering the basics, and it's just delightful content.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that. I sometimes watch certain... Um types of process videos to relax uh, often mm-hmm. like cooking videos but also i i've actually watched some of these same types of videos that jacob's talking about and in, in his email here just like uh, people building things or uh uh restoring things it's nice if there, especially if there's no talking it's just kind of like uh uh gentle low volume environmental sounds while somebody is doing something uh efficiently but not in a rushed way yeah especially on stuff like youtube
2: you can you can definitely find those videos that have that very youtube feel and kind of a disc jockey kind of narration there's some there's some miniature painting youtubers that are, are very good at what they do and are very educational and informative about the craft but they're not as relaxing as this guy in particular because uh-huh. they, they everything's maybe just a little bit pushed further in that YouTube, uh, uh, you know, star uh, direction. <laughs> All right. Here's another one for us. This is spinning and dizziness vestibular system plus a dash of robot jocks <laughs> from Jared. Hi, Robert and Joe. I'm catching up on a backlog that got built up this past fall. I had an experience related to spinning, dizziness, etc. I've been motion sensitive since my adolescence. I was more sensitive and prone to dizziness when doing flat circles versus vertical circles. Think spinning while standing up versus doing somersaults. When I was 19, a group of friends made a day trip to a local tourist attraction and we stopped at a city park for our lunch on the way back. A bunch of them took uh, to the merry-go-round roundabout and I really got it going. I helped back knowing about what uh, what was about to happen thanks to peer pressure i eventually gave in and joined them they got it going really fast and pretty soon i started to feel awful it was so evident uh, uh, that some of the group and the one doing the pushing could actually see that i was getting sick and stop the spinning so i could get off I avoided getting physically ill, but it was close. I was also one who would ride the extreme roller coasters at theme parks, but would uh, have to rest between rides to avoid getting sick. (laughs) Earlier in my marriage, my wife uh, bought me a NASCAR ride-along package for Christmas. After doing half a dozen laps at speed, I think my inner ear got a bit uh, of a reset or recalibration because about a year later, we went to a theme park and I was able to ride the roller coasters with barely any effect. And since then, I have uh, even been able to ride the teacups at Disneyland.
0: This is really interesting. I, I wonder if the mechanism here, I guess what's being implied by Jared, is that it could be this kind of uh, vestibular plasticity that we talked about in the spinning episodes. That yeah. M- maybe sometimes uh, with enough training, the brain can kind of adapt and, and desensitize itself somewhat to to dizziness yeah I wonder if people have
2: tried to make money off of this with programs sort of like a couch to loop to loop uh,
0: <laughs> a vestibular boot camp but I'm interested Jared so it seems like you you are motion sensitive yet constantly it sounds like you're seeking out extreme motion experiences so maybe you've got like a kind of a thrill seeking streak, but also you get dizzy or used to get dizzy yeah that's a <laughs> that's a conundrum. <laughs>
2: All right. He continues. I also have some thoughts about the plot and details of Robot Jocks. Bring it on. Regarding the discussion of combat by Champion and why either side would choose this over an all-on-all fight, uh, all-on-all warfare, considering the context of the film, it is possible and maybe even likely that the market and the confed could have been numerically and or technologically equal or close enough. Also, in the post-apocalyptic context, both sides could have felt that they couldn't afford to lose the number of people that would die or be permanently disabled in combat, much less the personnel and resources that would have been spent maintaining a military. Also, you talked about the square-cube law coming into play in real-world conditions around giant mechanical war machines. In real life, the design would be focused on stability and impact protection to avoid being crippled or destroyed by falling. And in this type of warfare, being able to shrink components without losing significant strength or power would be the technological advantage. Imagine the Cold War, and both the U.S. and NATO allies developed large mech suit soldiers, and the USSR and its Warsaw Pact allies did the same. Knowing that physicists would be designing and building around the square cube law, we would see the most successful side be the one who could keep their suit the smallest without suffering in armor or firepower. If you made it through all that... Thanks for entertaining my musings. I love the show. Jared. Uh,
0: some really interesting thoughts, Jared. Yeah. So if you were to take the robot jock scenario as real, uh, where for some reason these major superpowers in an in a ongoing conflict are settling everything by mech suit uh, champion warfare – I can absolutely see because uh, he, for example, referred to this idea we talked about with JBS Haldane and that famous uh, essay about, uh, you know, if a, like a mouse can fall down a mine shaft and survive, but a larger animal falls down and splashes. And this just mm-hmm. because like as you scale up the difference between uh, between your mass and the surface area of your body changes in a nonlinear way and thus like larger falling objects are more likely to get wrecked by falling. So if you got like a hundred foot tall robot, just falling over is going to destroy it almost no matter right. what. Uh, so yeah, so the the impetus here in that technological scenario would be on miniaturization. And it makes me wonder if if that were real, like if if as much uh, research and development, as went into things like, you know, nuclear weapons and rocketry and telemetry and all that kind of stuff, would actually just go into miniaturization of components. That that is an interesting thought.
2: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com.
1: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
2: All right. Looks like we have another bit of uh, Robot Jocks related uh, listener mail. Do you want
0: to take this one, Joe? Oh, sure. This comes from Joseph uh, addressing the same question about uh, Robot Jocks warfare and the logic of of champion combat. We were saying, you know, uh, why why would the force with superior numbers and firepower agree to champion combat? It seems like that that would just essentially be agreeing to. Uh, to lessening their odds. And so, uh, and so like, unless that the rules of champion warfare were imposed by an alien civilization or something like that, it's, it's hard to imagine that actually happening. But Joseph has a thought. Uh, he says, I had a minor comment, uh, to your review note. I have actually seen this movie when I was younger. You brought up the idea that a state with a larger force would not have great pressure to accept having single combat uh, as a subscription, as the larger force had the basic advantage. Here's one issue I see with that analysis – This is stated after a nuclear war. Since a very small group can use a nuclear weapon and destroy a very large group, and since the damage to the civilian population by nuclear weapons is also so massive and long-lasting, I think that most populations would enforce the ban on war by fully refusing to participate. Even a very totalitarian society can be brought to heel by a general public strike. (laughs) All right,
2: here's another one. This one comes to us from Sue, and this one is in in regard to our episode on the invention of the lock and key. Hello, guys. I was listening to the listener mail where you mentioned the idea that in video games, you don't have universal keys and are often guided in a way to navigate you through the story. But I know a franchise that goes against both concepts. (laughs) In the Legend of Zelda series, the main character Link collects small keys throughout the dungeons in the game. While you generally get a small key and then find a locked door shortly after, there are a few levels in some of the games that allow you to choose between more than one locked door. If you don't break the game, you just end up completing the level in a slightly different order depending on your choices. The only in-dungeon exception most of the time is the Nightmare Key or Boss Key, which is the only one in a level that can unlock the boss. In The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, you also don't even truly have to go through the story in any particular order. Once you leave the starting area, you can actually complete the four main dungeons in any order that you like or choose from what seems like 10 trillion side quests. But if you're really not feeling that, you can technically race all the way to the final boss from the start of the game. I've never tried this myself, but it appears to be documented online by others. Also about keys, my mom took my brother and I shopping as kids, and when we came out of the store, we got to her Hyundai. She was absolutely appalled that someone somehow threw a bunch of trash inside. Then she got this uh, look on her face and screamed, run. Apparently, that was her first reaction to realizing that her car was parked down the lot further, but her key unlocked an identical car that sat (laughs) closer to the store. Same white Hyundai. While we, uh, uh, we still laugh about this, but it's also creepy to think someone could be waiting in your car because their key happens to work in your car. Thanks for a great show,
0: Sue. Oh, that, that is a harrowing experience. I, I've never actually unlocked somebody else's car, but I have like gone up to other people's cars that looked like mine. Oh,
2: yeah, I've, I've done that quite a bit. They don't even have to look exactly like mine. If it's just, yeah. it's like a silver car, I'll just go up to it and uh, attempt to drive it home.
0: Yeah, it's four wheels. It's
2: basically... Close enough. Yeah. Close enough.
0: Close enough. You know, I want to say also, I, I have not had a lot of time for video games lately, but the one game that I have been playing a little bit off and on is, uh, is Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. I finally got into it. I've wanted to play it for a long time. And uh, I would just like to underline uh, uh, Sue's comments and say, Breath of the Wild is a beautiful game. I mean, actually beautiful. It's beautiful. It is, uh, it's like a work of art. It's just a, a, an absolutely wonderful piece of game design.
2: This is like a Switch game or something?
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, there's something deeply soothing about it. It's, it's just excellent. Okay, this next message comes from Bert, also about locks and keys. Bert says, I meant to send this story after your lock episode, but I listened while on the road and forgot by the time I could. When I was in college, I went to visit a friend. While there, his neighbor locked himself out of his apartment. For some reason I can't remember, we decided to try all of our keys. Mine opened his door. For the heck of it, we tried it on my friend's door. It opened. We knocked on his uh, other side neighbor, explained what was going on, and tried it on her door. It opened it. My apartment key was a master key to their apartment building or maybe complex. (laughs) We called our respective apartment managers and my lock was changed that night. Uh, All of these lock and key emails fill me with such confidence. Uh, (laughs) And Bert goes on to say also a little note about Blue Oyster Cult. I don't remember how that came up. Maybe it was a message in a previous listener mail episode. But Bert says, on Blue Oyster Cult, check out the live album ETI Live. I believe it is the story you were talking about. Uh, Maybe the the one that's like some kind of science fiction fantasy uh, concept album uh and then Bert also says it includes more Moorcock songs uh, that's michael Moorcock, such as black blade love the show bert
2: oh that that must be uh yeah referencing to
0: elric's uh sword yeah mm. i know nothing of this
2: oh i, I mean i, I have there're a whole bunch of morlock um, i'm sorry there're a whole bunch of morcock <laughs> michael uh, Moorcock. novels <laughs> uh, i think he may have written about morlocks at, at some point he, he uh-huh. you know he wrote quite a bit uh, i've only ever read the one uh Elric uh, book, though I have a bunch of the paperback sitting around here, but I remember it, uh, the, whichever one I read, I guess it was Elric of Melnimity. Uh, I remember it being a lot of fun.
0: Uh, do you want to read this next message from Matt?
2: Yes, Matt says, Hey guys, I just wanted to chime in about keys. While, as you would guess, there is a lot of variance in number of keys and key types and the evolution of how complex they actually are. That said, I'm going to be, and I'm going to be narrow minded here and just focus on the Ford Motor Company. Ford was one of the worst uh, with key security for almost a century. Although today with chips and modern tech, uh, your chances of finding a matching car are pretty much zero. Back in the day, that was not the case, though. In 1908, Ford had a total of two key types. So you had a 50-50 shot. Wait, hold on. In
0: 1908,
2: they had keys at all? (laughs) That's kind of surprising. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay. Anyway, it continues. In 1919, that was changed to three. And then in 1926, Ford went to a nickel key instead of a brass and up the key total to a whopping five. (laughs) I know this was a long time ago, but in 1970, the total key types for, for Ford stood at 16, This kept gradually rising, and in 1988, there were 42 versions of the Ford Mustang key. The 90s brought about a sharp rise in car theft, and also security and the numbers rose sharply to the point where today your chances of an identical key are pretty much zero. But just thinking that in 1988, you had a 1 in 42 shot is rather funny. While Ford was far behind in key tech for years, and other car makers actually did much better, Uh, but I'm not trying to write a novella, so that's just some fun info for you. Uh, So next time you see an old Ford, just break out the old key drawer, and you might just get lucky. (laughs) Thanks, guys, for making life a little more interesting and helping me seem smarter than I actually am. Have a wonderful day, and keep up the good
0: work. Matt. Uh, Great info, Matt. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, we got one last message here. This one's from Aiden. Aiden says, Hi, Robert and Joe. Oh, and sorry, this one is about our vault episode on horseshoe crabs. But actually, Aiden says that, so I didn't really need to presage it. Uh, So Aiden says, I just heard your latest vault episode about horseshoe crabs. Um, As you were discussing the extremely long history of horseshoe crabs and other stabilomorphs, I was reminded of a recent episode where you discussed search algorithms. One way to look at the evolutionary success of horseshoe crabs could be in the terms of an evolutionary search algorithm. Maybe they have stayed so consistent because they are stuck in a local maximum of the evolutionary fitness function – If we visualize this using the finding the top of a mountain analogy that you mentioned in the Search Algorithms episode, I think the horseshoe crab's mountain would be very tall and very steep. The longevity of the species would indicate that they have very high evolutionary fitness, so I imagine their mountain peak is much taller than that of many other organisms on Earth. Secondly, the consistency of their body plan over such long timescales could suggest that the slopes of their evolutionary mountain peak are very steep, i.e. for some reason minor variations incur a great evolutionary cost, preventing any changes from taking hold within the population. It is also amusing to consider the possibility that the humble horseshoe crab has not only found a very stable local maximum, but has in fact found the global maximum of the evolutionary fitness function, making it the most fit organism on the planet or perhaps in the universe. Maybe they're up there on the peak, looking down at all other organisms with their ten serious little compound eyes. Thanks for another great episode. Best, Aiden. That's some wonderful content there. I would like to suggest
2: to Planet Fitness that um, <laughs> that you acquire the Horseshoe Crab as a mascot immediately and have it featured on all of your branding.
0: Right. You are not fit until you're a Horseshoe Crab. Yeah. Keep keep pumping until you got those uh, – what were their eyes made of? I've forgotten now. Some, some kind of interesting mineral eyes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I mean, the Horseshoe Crab would make a good – I mean, the Horseshoe Crab is instantly identifiable – I think it would make a great mascot for, for any purpose, be it a logo um, for a business
0: or a sports team mascot. I mean, that would be great. I agree. Fighting horseshoe crabs. Yeah. Somebody out there must be. A, there's, a, there's a banana slugs, right? Somebody's got to yep, be yep. The horseshoe crabs.
2: Yeah, uh, I, in fact, somebody from that uh, that college sent some merch way back in the day. They were like, they were really proud of their their banana slugs. And banana slugs are great. They're having having uh, seen them in the wild now. I can mm-hmm. say they're they're tremendous. Wait, who is it? Was it like UC
0: Santa Cruz or something?
2: I think so. Uh, you know, I'd have to have to look it up, but yeah, you go into into uh, you know into into the big forest there, uh, and you you see them there, and their their little uh, you know yellow golden spirals there uh, amid the the leaf litter and all. Yeah,
0: it's pretty great. Yeah, I was right. It's, it's Santa Cruz. Yeah, very good mascot. But somebody out there, if you don't already have uh, uh, the the horseshoe crabs, go for it.
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm. You know, I'm not a, a huge uh, team sports. Uh, person but i do en- enjoy whenever there is a a mascot choice that kind of uh, flips the script a little bit like mm-hmm. there there is a a basketball team where we, they're the wizards right the so wiz- they have a an actual washington Wizard. washington wizards
0: mas- or something yeah. yeah
2: so i mean i don't know to what extent they're really taking advantage of that but i think that's pretty cool where your mascot is like an an aged sorcerer or something you know radagast yeah <laughs> There's so much you could do with that. Then you got the Raptors. I mean, that's really cool. Uh-huh. I remember being a kid and there was pressure to like football, uh, like NFL football. And I remember looking around and I'm like, well, which of these mascots excites me? I guess it's the Vikings. That's the only thing that is even halfway, um, you know, jumping out at me. So I think I bought a Vikings pencil. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that was as far into NFL football
0: as i got. Oh uh, wait, no, if if no team out there has yet adopted the slime mold as their mascot, that's got to be that like the the peak.
2: Yeah, they're they're slow but they're thorough, you know.
0: <laughs> okay, should we wrap it up there?
2: Yeah, let's go ahead and wrap it up for this week. But we'll be back next week with more listener mail. So write in, you know, write in in response to episodes that we've recorded, episodes you think we should record, new episodes, old episodes, your responses to other listener mails you've heard, um, praise, corrections, what have you. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And in the meantime, if you want to check out other listener mail episodes, other episodes of Stuff to Boil Your Mind, our Friday episodes of Weird House Cinema, or those core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, you can find us wherever you get your podcast. Just look for the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Huge
0: thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a
1: production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app.